time for episode 77 of Love That Album. In Australia in 1975, the Prime Minister Gough Whitlam was sacked by the Governor-General in a constitutional crisis. Well may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. Picnic at Hanging Rock was released. Graham Kennedy gave his infamous crow call, which had him sacked from television. Most important from all of these, for this podcast anyway, is Skyhooks released their second album, Ego Is Not A Dirty Word. Only the year before, Skyhooks had released their debut album, Living In The 70s, which sold more records than any other Australian album had to that time. They were hugely popular, but challenged the establishment with songs about sex, popular revolution, and the horrors of society revealed on the daily news. This got many of their songs banned from radio, a surefire way to success. In the first of two episodes centred around the band, Morris is joined by Skyhooks biographer Jeff Jenkins to discuss the impact the band continued to have on Australia's musical landscape, why they didn't make it in America, and the cultural divide in the band. They also discuss how the songwriting of Greg McCainch evolved for Ego. So, hold on to your Ego, grab your Twisties packets and enjoy the show. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? there. Welcome to episode 77 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris, and yes, we are having not one, but two episodes this month devoted to the band Skyhooks and the 40th anniversary of their second album, Ego Is Not A Dirty Word. I'm very, very excited about this. First time around, we're going to be having a discussion that I had very recently with music journalist and Skyhooks biographer Jeff Jenkins about everything surrounding the release of their second album. And later on in the month, I'll be releasing a chat that I will have, I haven't recorded it yet, with Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide podcast host Mr. Michael Persh and all-round great guitarist and Skyhooks fan Reese Lett. Uh, and we'll all be discussing our passion for the album, Ego Is Not A dirty word and breaking it down in the usual love that album way this episode is going to be more about the circumstances and the history of the band rather than the music on the album itself although we do touch a little bit on the album in that regard so uh, sit back i hope that you enjoy the show and we'll hope to entertain you uh, why do you think that rock has got so far into theater that makeup and costumes and everything like that have become so important is it just because you've got to get people's attention well, I don't, I don't see why people don't, really. I mean, mm. if you put yourself on a stage, if you're in the theatre and you put yourself on a stage, it's absurd not to wear costumes or wear makeup because you're trying to represent something. If you're in a band, it's sort of pretty vain, really, of guys to stand up on stage in their jeans, being themselves, 
they expect that people are going to be interested in them being themselves. It's more relevant if, if people are going to watch you, they have to have something to watch. Do you write most of the songs for the... Yeah, the stuff. And the lyrics I've noticed are fairly interesting, and uh, they're, they're not just uh, I love you but you don't love me kind of thing, are they? Yeah, well, I, I figure there's a lot of there's a lot of love songs around. Um, it's pretty hard to compete with uh, guys like Barry White, so I prefer to write about other things. You know. To episode 77 of the Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris. Thank you for joining us. And as I've mentioned before, this episode is a very, very special one, very sentimental to my heart, because this is the 40th anniversary of the album Ego Is Not A Dirty Word by Australian band and more to the point, Melbourne band, Skyhooks. It's their second album, or if you're in America, Sophomore album, I believe is the expression. And um, I have with me to talk about the history of the, uh, of the album and some of the history of the band, a man who's no stranger to the hallowed halls of Love That Album podcast. He hasn't been on for a while, so I welcome him back with open arms, Mr. Jeff Jenkins, music journalist and biographer of Skyhooks, as it turns out. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me back, Mo. It's great to be back on Love That Album. We had a really interesting encounter a couple of weeks ago, just accidentally on a Melbourne tram. I bumped into you and we started talking about skyhooks and ego is not a dirty word and you told me how special it was for you. And then a woman interrupted us and uh, started talking and I said, oh, so you're a skyhooks fan as well? And she goes, no, sherbet. (laughs) And so it was great that 40 years later, that civil war that gripped Australia in the mid-70s it's still, it might not be raging, but it's still there. I thought it was very, very special. Now, if you're listening to this in Australia and you're roughly our age, then the Skyhooks Sherbet Wars will certainly be uh, familiar and fresh in your mind. But for those people living outside Australia who are wondering what's this Sherbet uh, Skyhooks competition all about, who were Sherbet, uh, just imagine, you know, on the internet, there's all these Beatles versus Rolling Stones type of arguments. Well, that was you're either a Skyhooks fan or a Sherbet fan. And generally, I think it was. Would it be sexist to say that Sherbet were for the gals and Skyhooks were for oh, the blokes? Yeah, I, I, a little bit. But I think that would be kind of you know it was a real mix of things and not making it a Melbourne Sydney thing. But in a lot of ways, you could make that sort of argument too that Melbourne was Skyhooks. It was sort of arty. It was intellectual. It had a bit more depth. Sherbet was more Sydney, a little bit more shallow, a bit more flashy, a bit more pop. Um, and, the, you know, Skyhooks were the album's band. Sherbet were the singles band. That sort of thing. You know, what? Well, okay, so what you've gone and brought up there is very, very interesting, especially in the light of a compilation that came out late last year put together by a fellow called David Lang called When the Sun Sets Over Carlton. Now, he's gone and made some absolutely brilliant compilations assembled over the last few years, you know, with Boogie uh, about the Australian blues rock and hard rock scene of the 70s and Silver Roads talking about, you know, with songs from the country rock scene and When the Sun Sits Over Carlton, which was, as you said, more the arty, intellectual type of bands. So the question that I've sort of been thinking about in my mind that I wanted to put to you before we talk about Ego is Not a Dirty Word Proper is what 
from your research for the book, what was the environment that Skyhooks actually came into? Because when you think of early 70s Australian rock and roll, you're tending to think of, you know, Billy Thorpe and you're tending to think of uh, more bluesy, hard rock, Sunbury Music Festival, that sort of thing. And Skyhooks, in a way, was a long way from that sort of music. So, but were there a lot of other bands who were maybe without the without the makeup and without the costume and certainly without the popularity, but were there other bands that were doing, approaching music in a similar sort of fashion to Skyhooks at the time? It's really interesting where Skyhooks came from because they were kind of a mix of that Carlton scene, which Red Simons was really prominent in, and uh, Steve Hill, who was the very first Skyhook singer, they were leaders of that sort of scene, which was very much an underground uh, theatrical scene. Uh, the Pram Factory was part of all of that in the theatre world. Uh, and also then uh, Greg McCainch, of course, coming from Eltham and that sort of scene, which also was kind of where... Uh, I guess a lot of those sort of Carlton people, if they moved out, if they wanted a bit of a, you know, a bit of a change of life, Eltham was, uh, you know, um, sort of almost country and kind of very hippie-ish. So I think what made Skyhooks uh, really interesting, so there was that sort of scene, and, and Ross Wilson was a big part of the Skyhook story, and we'll talk about him in, in a minute. Um, and so he was very interesting too, and he'd been, you know, making music since the mid-60s. And then early 70s with Daddy Cool, absolutely massive. But he had other groups which, you know, Sons of the Vegetal Mother, which kind of summed up the scene at the time. Uh, you know, macrobiotic food was becoming a big thing. The TF Much Ballroom was a big thing uh, in that underground alternative scene in Melbourne. The Captain Matchbox Whoopie Band. There's just a great book that's just come out about those guys. So there was a real arty scene rising up spectrum in, in Melbourne, a really significant significant bands who were just doing things suddenly the you know the album was a really big thing let's make an album it wasn't you know about sort of singles what sherbet was doing um, for a contrast so it was a fascinating scene i think what made skyhooks really really special was that they managed to mix the two they were a classic sort of rock band so they appealed to the pub rock fans and they became a major pub rock band like your Thorpey um, but they also managed to combine that arty side so they had uh, that real substance for people and they gave you know because uh, particularly people like Red Simons and Greg McCainch incredibly intellectual people but they had that mix of people in the band. Sherl, what an Aussie larrikin, yes. uh, classic pub rock frontman. You know, the type of guy, he got stacks of girls, but the type of bloke that the guys wanted to have a beer with him. So he was a fantastic frontman. But the polar opposite to Red. Red and Greg, they're the type of guys who would uh, analyse things on a very intellectual basis. Shell was the opposite of that. He was just a guy who was just like, ah, let's do it. You know, it was all about the feel to him. So such an interesting mix of personalities within Skyhooks and they managed to combine that arty scene that was going on in Melbourne in Carlton and Eltham and with the rock scene that was going on and they managed to fit beautifully into Countdown, which emerged at the same time. This is a question actually I was sort of going to bring up a little bit later on when we sort of approached your thoughts on the album itself, but I think now is a very good time to bring it up because you've gone and said that, you know, Greg McCainch and Red Simons, as, both as songwriters for the band, came from a very intellectual sort of background, and yet the irony is that one of the songs on Ego is Not a Dirty Word is Smart Ass Songwriters, and Greg McCainch is uh, written and Sherl is singing about, you know, fuck intellectual th thought – 
just get down and sing a bit of good old-fashioned rock and roll. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating song on this record and because Greg McCainch was a smart-ass songwriter. I yes, mean, Red exactly, was exactly. a smart-ass songwriter too. Um, so that's kind of a, like a having your cake and eating it sort of two song because, um, you know, the message was, um, you know, I wish they'd all just shut their mouths and, and get down with the dancers. So that was kind of... And that really sums up Greg in so many ways because, as I said, he was a smart-ass songwriter. There were a lot of very, you know, witty, cynical, sort of lines in Greg McCainch's songs. But there's nothing cynical in that song. No. and, and Pretty sincere. But there's a real side to him because I remember talking to him when Skyhooks emerged. He loved Gary Glitter. And I mean, you, you don't want to mention Gary Glitter now for a lot of reasons. But at the time, he was a massive star. And uh, he, and I think, took the other guys along and said that's what, you know, sort of visually, he wanted Skyhooks to be really exciting. They didn't wear blue jeans. There, there was a rule, no blue jeans, because that's what Australian pub rock bands, that's how they looked at the time, was blue jeans and T-shirts. Of course, they had a statement you know, by the time they got to their third album about people who wore, yeah. everyone's wearing Every, blue jeans. Everyone's wearing blue jeans, yeah, exactly. So that's what they were, they were the opposite of that too. So, but there was a real part of Greg, and still, you know, his all-time favourite band is ACDC. There's a part of him that just loves classic rock and big riffs and just, you know, great guitar sounds. So in a lot of ways, that's what he's saying in that song, Smart Ass Songwriters. Um, and, you know, to quote him, you know, give me some of that rock and roll melody, give me some of that rock and roll beat, give me some of that rock and roll ecstasy. And that's what Greg McCainch was kind of all about, as well as having those very, very clever lyrics and being a smart ass songwriter. So, and that's exactly what I was saying with Skyhooks. You know, they had their cake and they, they ate it as well. Um, and sort of, and also it was interesting with that being on the second album because maybe there was an element of Greg being sort of tired and, and the same thing that Dylan went through. You know, don't overanalyze my songs, man. Don't try and read too much meaning into it. It's only rock and roll, you know, and don't look to me for having all the answers. Just enjoy it. Have a good time. Dance. I think, I think the interesting thing about Greg McCainch's lyrics is unlike someone like Bob Dylan who was often deliberately trying to be obscure and you couldn't help but try and find what's he actually saying here. Uh, McCainch, in, in his songs, that he often got straight to the point but he was just very articulate in the way he did it. He wasn't hiding, oh, there's a subtext here. This, this is what I'm saying. I'm being straightforward but I'm just being, I'm just choosing the right words. They're, they're, um, I know that there are some songwriters who say that, oh, this song came to me in five minutes and it all comes down on paper but McCainch's lyrics sound like they're definitely very crafted. Like he sat down and he thought about it for, you know, do I use the word the or do I use the word ah here? What will get my point across better? So it's crafted without being too too uh, obscure. Yeah, and that's where he was just part of this magical combination that made up Skyhooks. It was five guys, that essential lineup, five guys. They probably wouldn't have hung out together in any circumstances. Having said that, Greg and Freddie, the drummer, went to school together, so they were, you know, old mates, but still very, very different people. And Greg, in, in so many ways, Sherl and Red were sort of like the front men of the band and, 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 and certainly dominated, you know, the, the interviews that the band did back in those days um, and were very, very clever people um, and um, Bob was sort of had that youthful exuberance and just such a, a great guitarist and looked great on stage uh, Greg was the brooding guy that uh, you know the enigmatic 
guy who, yeah, that element of mystery about him. So in a lot of ways, you know, and that was very genuine too. I think he was the guy who would be at home crafting these incredible songs. Um, and Red was a great songwriter too, but I remember, you know, he would just have the one song. There'd be the one Red Simon song. And that created, you know, uh, a lot of conflict within the band because, but I remember talking to Greg about it and he would say, well, Red would rock up to, you know, when we're making an album with three or four songs and expect that they'd all be on the album. He said, I would turn up with 30 songs and, you know, and then rely on Ross Wilson and other people's input to go, that's the song, that's the song, no, we won't do that one, won't do that one. So that was the thing about Greg, you know, that, and just that brooding, you know, a lot of depth to Greg McCainch. But as I said, you know, and what made them a great band, they there were... A mix of things. Greg had that element that, you know, loving that sort of glam rock, but also loving the sort of intellectual side to, you know, having the depth to those songs. So, yeah, fascinating mix of people, Skyhooks. So, let's actually talk a little bit about the circumstances leading into Ego is Not a Dirty Word. So, they'd just come off Living in the 70s, which was the biggest album ever recorded in this country and probably held that record for many years straight after that so yeah there was that extraordinary we really got to give it context because uh, just for people you know coming along uh new to that story to at that time if a local album sold fifty thousand copies that would have been phenomenal that was a blockbuster in australia living in the 70s came along and sold two hundred and fifty thousand copies so it was mind-blowingly successful. So when you say 250,000 copies, do you mean like within that initial period? I mean, what's it? what would it be up to now with CD re-releases and vinyl re-releases? Yeah, good, good, good. We'd be talking in the millions by now. Yeah, I don't know if in the millions, but it was phenomenally successful at that time. And to put it in the context too, there was so much going on in Australian music at that point in time. Living in the 70s came out in October. October 1974 and just backtracking a little bit uh, they played Sunbury in 1974 with Steve Hill as their singer and the story goes that you know that was recorded for TV it was a very hot day they obviously wore makeup it was quite primitive at that time Steve Hill watched it back and his makeup was running it wasn't a good performance and he just went this is not for me I'm out and so that was a real at the time they were kind of like what are we going to do now and they ended up getting Shirley Strawn, who they'd had a connection with from a previous band called Frame, uh, Greg McCainch. And, and so he joined the band early 1974. Fast forward to October, Living in the 70s is released. Um, Countdown starts in November 1974. They're on the very first episode. Um, and then fast forward to you know a couple months later to 1975, two Double J starts, the forerunner of Triple J. Um, just a Sydney station back then. The first song they play, Skyhook song, You Just Like Me Because I'm Good in Bed, which was banned by radio, but that was their way of sort of, you know, sticking it up the establishment. We're going to play this banned song as our first song. In March, Colour TV arrives in Australia, um, and the first official show, Colour, uh, was Countdown, hosted by Johnny Farnham. The first song they played, Horror Movie, uh, then in that same month, March 1975, Ram, a new Australian rock paper, starts in Sydney. Skyhooks are on the first cover. Two months later in May, uh, Duke starts in Melbourne, another rock paper. Shirley Strawn's on their first cover. 
Um, so it was just a phenomenal year for Australian music. And of course, it wasn't just Skyhooks. ACDC released their first album that year. LRB started. Richard Clapton released Girls on the Avenue. John Paul Young was massive too. Yesterday's Hero re- was released that year. Ted Mulry Gang, Jump in My Car. So there was so much going on in Australian music, but it really was dominated by Skyhooks and Living in the 70s, which spent 16 weeks at number one. It was an absolute phenomenon. It put music on the front page and, and, it, and, you know, and it did save Mushroom Records too. And I, I would presume that their biggest fan base would have been in Melbourne? Very much so. Very much so. Although it became a nationwide thing. Um, what was really interesting, uh, I think Living in the 70s was the first single from Living in the 70s. But that didn't really break through, I don't think, in a big way. Because I remember speaking to a mate years later who grew up in Sydney. And he was like, oh, yeah, and horror movie, that was the first single. And I said, well, no. But for him, that kind of was. That was the one that really did it for them. And it was funny because Greg McCange, kind of not flippantly, but back then there was a real Melbourne-Sydney divide. And his ambition when Skyhooks released Living in the 70s was to crack Sydney. That was his aim. And they certainly did that. They just cracked Sydney and then dominated Australia. Australia had never seen anything like it to sell that amount of albums. It really, um, you know, I often say that they showed that you could make money out of rock and roll, that you could get paid for just being a freak, which, you know, I'm quoting one of the lines from that first record. Um, And they really did. And it was just a, a phenomenal story. So then when it came to the second album, Um, They really were going into uncharted territory. Um, How do you follow the biggest album of all time? Um, And go where, you know, no Australian band had gone before. And at that time, there were a number of stories in the music press, different critics and different people sort of saying, get out of the country, you're overexposed. You know, you need to do something differently. Um, and also there was a crazy story, Anthony O'Grady, the editor of, uh, uh, of RAM, he, he did an article in RAM quoting a Mushroom record staffer who said, I don't think it's wise for them to make a second album, it's just going to get slagged. And the advice from that staffer was promote the hell out of the first album and then break up. And of course that was never going to happen, but it's interesting just to you know give that context for Ego is Not a Dirty Word because... They were just so massive. Where do you go after that? And it's fascinating to think Ego is Not a Dirty Word came out just eight months after living in the 70s. You tell that to the kids nowadays who are waiting for a new album from whichever phenomenal act. They've got to wait two, three years, and and that's a normal thing. And I mean, I hadn't even sort of given this any consideration until you sort of brought it to my mind now. I mean, I knew Living in the 70s was out in 74, Ego was out in 75, but it, it hadn't occurred to me, I hadn't thought about that, you know, Living in the 70s was released so late in 74, and we're talking just that eight-month gap. Yeah, and I mean, Skyhooks weren't unique doing that, as you are saying, in the 70s. I mean, Elton John put out so many albums and so many other artists did, but it was kind of crazy looking back because Living in the 70s was still at number one 
when Ego was released. I mean, it is kind of like bizarre. It was kind of a similar situation to what happened with Men at Work years later right. in America because there was a delay in with the Americans releasing um, business as usual and then with the follow-up cargo. So it was a similar sort of story. But it was just kind of, yeah, it's kind of bizarre to think that they followed it up so quickly and their, their work ethic was quite remarkable because it wasn't like they just put out the album and then did nothing and then wrote and recorded Ego. They were on the road. They were doing, obviously, Countdown all the time. You know, their media commitments were, you know, <laughs> pretty massive. But then they got back into the studio. The very, very funny story with all this, they returned to the studio, the same studio where they made Living in the 70s, rocked up to make Ego is Not a Dirty Word, and the studio wouldn't let them in. And they were like, what's all this about? You know, we're booked to, to, to make the new record. And they said, yeah, well, you haven't paid the bill from the first album, which was pretty mind-blowing that it had been the biggest album of all time in Australia, and they hadn't paid the bill, the recording bill. And the problem was Michael Gadinsky hasn't, hadn't paid the recording bill. And I remember talking to him about that years later. Was and, he still paying off creditors from previous albums? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it, <laughs> this showed, it just showed how tough it was running an Australian record company at that point in time. You know, it still would be, but particularly at that point in time. And you've got to remember Michael Gadinsky was just 22 years old. He's a, an incredible part of this whole story because he was Skyhooks' manager as well. And it started Mushroom Records a couple of years before that and they'd had a bit of success with uh, you know Matter Lake that had a gold album but really they hadn't had a lot of success so he was just paying off those bills from the Skyhook success and I guess pass- possibly it was due to the times but you know full credit should be given to Michael Gadinsky because um, when you think like very much know, so years later with with split ends um, he hung like, in there he hung in there I mean it wasn't yep. until true colors exploded I mean you know, people knew who split ends were but they were still fairly much a cult band, but it wasn't until uh, Neil Finn joins the band and they, they put out True Colours that all of a sudden, boom, they're the biggest band in Australasia. Yes. Uh, but he, any other band, or like now. Would have been dropped. That's, that's yep. it. They would never have gone to record True Colours. No. And if, I like to think that if Living in the 70s had only been like a, a minor success, we still would have had Without well, a, second, a, a second Skyhooks album. Without a doubt. That was the thing about Michael Gadinsky and still, you know, his loyalty to his artists and it isn't just all make or break on one song or one album. He hangs in there. So, so let me ask you this. Were the songs that appeared on Ego is Not a Dirty Word, were they fresh songs or were they songs that uh, Greg had already like you know, written up and, and just were rejected for living in the 70s. I think that's one reason why Ego is such a strong album because putting that whole context and people were just like, you know, get out of the country, you know, wait till you release the second album or break up. Um, so there was an incredible amount of pressure on them and that old cliche that you have a lifetime to make your debut album and only a few months to make your second album. Right. And that's one reason why a lot of second albums aren't quite as good as, as debut records. Um, but with this one, because of Greg, you know, that real work ethic that he had, he had written the core of Ego before Living in the 70s was released. And a great example of that is All My Friends Are Getting Married. There is a demo version of that with Steve Hill doing it. I've forgotten about that, yes. Which is fascinating because it really contrasts the difference in the voice. You know, Steve Hill had kind of that really deep kind of voice 
you know, almost like a bit of a Tom Waits, Captain Beefheart type of vibe. So it's a very different sort of song with Steve Hill singing All My Friends Are Getting Bar- Married to compared to Cheryl's very high-pitched, you know, almost like a Leo, Sa- Leo Sayer type of voice. I was, I was also going to say about All My Friends Are Getting Married, it's a strange song for a band which I guess primarily appealed to um, maybe the mid mid to late teens where none of their friends were getting married. This would be like, you know, aimed at maybe the mid-20s, you know, 25, 26-year-age uh, group. And, and uh, you know, this uh, in this song, you know, primarily their audience is, you know, probably scratching their heads. Thinking, yeah, I don't think so. What's, what's the... <laughs> and it's... I'm wondering, was there any sort of backlash at the time because All My Friends Are Getting Married was a single... And, you know, when we think of Skyhooks and the single, we're thinking, well, you mentioned before, horror movie. And I, I remember I was in, whatever, grade five or grade six at the time. And my you know, some of my school friends were saying, you know, what's this shit? And I came back to the song and I was like, well, this is actually a pretty cool song. But yeah, I wasn't appreciating it for from a, from a subject matter perspective. Now I understand. But at the time, I'm just wondering, what were they thinking putting that out as a single? It was a very unlikely Skyhook song, wasn't it? And But it was a massive hit them as, as a single and the great irony of that song too is that and they packed so much into that sort of year was that um, Skyhooks released Ego is Not a Dirty Word a few weeks later Cheryl gets married and, and I remember talking to Cheryl about that and it was kind of like you know the length you'll go to to promote a single um, <laughs> but it was kind of like Cheryl's way of and they were all kind of dealing in their own different ways with fame and, uh, you know, and fame, you know, leads to a lot of people kind of flipping out. And Cheryl said, you know, even though he very much loved the woman that he married, it was his childhood sweetheart. But he just sort of said that was his way, you know, he flipped out with fame and his way of dealing with it was to marry his childhood sweetheart. And as he sort of, you know, said, it was kind of not the right move. And he, he, he certainly wasn't a great husband, I don't think, because he was, he was living a rock and roll life and he wasn't ready to settle down. So marriage wasn't the right way to go, but it was just kind of his way of dealing with the crazy fame that Skyhooks, you know, suddenly had. Um, but yeah, very funny that it coincided with a single called All My Friends Are Getting Married. I guess that also leads to um, another thought about some of the songs on the album. Like, we know that Living in the 70s was an album, as we've sort of already gone and discussed about Greg McCain, was an album of smart-ass songs, and certainly with Red Simons with his song Smut. Um, now, there, there are, you know, obviously a couple of uh, songs which are dictated by, I guess, uh, both Greg and Red's observations of society so you know there's there's not there's not necessarily a song like uh, whatever happened to the revolution but i guess as an equivalent to uh Tarek cowboy on the first album they have mercedes ladies on this one so there's there's societal observations but you also have songs uh like uh, uh not love on the radio um uh, love's love's not good enough which is you know, pretty serious and there's nothing like that you, you're used to hearing motorcycle bitch and smut from the first album and 
uh, McCain sort of takes a very, I wouldn't, not a dark road, but, but a pretty serious road on a song like that. And there are a couple of songs like that on this album. It is a different album. Um, we were talking, talking before that um, Greg kind of had the core of this album written before Living in the 70s was released and definitely had All My Friends Are Getting Married, smart-ass songwriters he'd already written, uh, Love on the Radio, and also Ego is Not a Dirty Word, the title track. But Ego is a different album um, and there's certainly that first album was really dominant uh, dominated by and, and certainly remembered for all those Melbourne references and that was something we, we, Greg McCainch is such a significant Australian songwriter because suddenly he was writing about local landmarks and mentioning suburbs and that was a remarkable thing and a great leap forward for Australian music. I mean we're so used to uh, American songwriters and maybe to a lesser extent British songwriters singing about local landmarks and you know quite right so, but uh, nowadays we take it in our stride, you know, with uh, uh, songwriters like Paul Kelly and Michael Thomas doing that sort of thing. But but back then it was rare, yeah, yeah, yeah. because we had, you know, say Axiom had Arkansas Grass. That was an example yes. of an Australian song that wasn't overly Australian. But yeah, on that first record, all those local references, Turak and Baldwin and and Carlton. But in the second album, there aren't uh, really too many Melbourne references. There's really only kind of one specifically in Mercedes Ladies. It, there is a reference to Collins Street, which is a major street in the city in Melbourne. But I remember talking to Greg McCainch about that, and he just sort of said, well, I didn't want to repeat myself. I'd done those Melbourne sort of, um, you know, references on living in the 70s. I didn't want to do that again. Um, but he said they're still very Melbourne songs, but without the specific references on, on the album. Um, to me, I'd have to say, yeah, I love Ego is not a dirty word, but I've been listening to it um, since you asked me to do this podcast quite a bit again. I think song for song, it's not as good a record as Living in the 70s, but it is a really, really interesting record. And there are great songs on here. I'm being very critical because I think, you know, Living in the 70s is just, you know, an inc- you know landmark Australian album and still stands up. Ego is a phenomenal follow-up. You know, they didn't really drop the ball. It wasn't like an embarrassing, um, you know, Alana Morissette follow-up. Or I don't know, I'm just trying to think of people who've had that massive debut and, and not been able to follow through. Ego is a great record, but I just think song for song, it's not quite as good. See, I, I was going to actually ask you, you know, in the, in the scheme of things, you know, Ego or living in the 70s and we haven't even saw like made any mention of straight in the gay gay world or, or um, yeah. guilty until proven insane or yeah I do uh, want to jump in funnily enough in. I think straight in the gay gay world is my favorite Skyhooks album and see that's a very different setting record a, a lot of a lot of country influences on that yeah it's very different and it was kind of an ill-fated record because we we do need to talk about sort of the, the American thing which came in to Skyhooks so as I said, people were saying they're overexposed, they've got to get out of Australia, and they really gave it a shot. In uh, They signed a deal, uh, Michael Gidinski organised a deal with Mercury Records in America, and it was trumpeted as the biggest thing of all time for an Australian band. It was 10 albums deal, uh, five-year deal. You know, I don't know how they were going to make 10 albums in five years. Um, the, the Beatles did it. Yeah, well, that's true. And $1.5 million, and, and it really wasn't as great a deal as was, you know, heralded as at the time and they got to America and I really felt for Skyhooks because they got to America and, and a lot of the Americans thought they were just a pale imitation of Kiss and and they had no idea Kiss even existed 
you know, when, when they were starting Skyhooks. But once they got there, you know, and KISS obviously had the huge stage act, so whatever Skyhooks could do, you know, supporting Uriah Heep or whatever they were doing in America wasn't looking as great. And, and I don't think the American record company was overly committed. Um, they had a real breakthrough in Jacksonville, I think in Florida, and uh, there was a radio programmer there who loved Australian music and was really instrumental in LRB breaking over there, ACDC, and he certainly loved Skyhooks as well. Don't know what that guy's name was, but he was, you know, a great champion of Australian music. And it kind of showed that, you know, Skyhooks could have made it but it was going to take a lot of work. Um, Ego's Not a Dirty Word was the first release in America. Uh, the album was released in December 1975. It was the Australian version of the album, but two songs from Living in the 70s, Horror Movie and You Just Like Me Because I'm Good in Bed replaced Every Chase of Steeple and Private Eye on, on that release. Inexplicably, they released Mercedes Ladies, the Americans, as the first single. And I think it's, you know, it's a good song, but... It, it, Not a single. It wouldn't be where I'd go to as the first single. So I, I certainly think that didn't help the American campaign. Um, while they were in America, they toured America in 1976. Um, they made their third album, Straight in the Gay Gay World, over there. And it, and it would have... Uh, and I think the budget for that album was $60,000, which was a significant amount of money back in 1976. But the budget for um, Ego is Not a Dirty Word was only $15,000. And I, I think we've got to mention Ross Wilson. What an incredible part of the Skyhook story he was. Uh, produced the first three albums and particularly those first two albums, uh, making it, you know, we're probably recording this podcast on a much better machine than what he had to record Living in the 70s and Ego is Not a Dirty Word. And... They sound great. It's such you know an exciting, dynamic record, both living in the 70s and Ego is Not a Dirty Word. Skyhooks were a great live band, but they were quite quirky too. And, and Ross Wilson managed to capture all those quirks and still make it sound dynamic. Now, I was watching uh, a little bit of uh, footage on YouTube and very, very old. Well, it's from the period. I, I'm not sure whether it was recorded like as a promo kit or whether it was something that ended up on the ABC, but they had Red Simons narrating some, like this, they had this film footage of, of uh, the band coming in to record Love Is Not Good Enough, and you know, Red Simons sounding a long way from the smart ass of ABC Breakfast Radio nowadays, uh, but he was, um, he was sort of saying, oh, well, Freddie is first in the studio. It takes him the longest to get set up. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But um, anyway, so the whole, the whole point of this was the, the, they have a little bit of uh, film footage of, um, of Ross Wilson. And he made it out like just how pedantic Ross was as a producer to make sure that they got the sound absolutely right. And if it was going to take 50 takes to to do something then it was going to happen and if uh, the musicianship on a particular song was not up to par then he would tell them so he had no hesitation but he knew he wanted to get the best out of them I mean it may be a common story most a lot of the greatest producers but it's nice to know that a good chunk of their success and a good chunk of why those albums sound so good was as a result of Ross Wilson and for people who um, outside of Australia who may not know who Ross Wilson is go back there's an earlier episode of 
love that album where uh, myself and my good friend Michael Persh discuss his excellent album from uh, 1980-something, The Dark Side of the Man. Oh, his but, first solo record. Yes. Uh, and But it, really, he'd been something of a legend even before that, even before Skyhooks having been part of... Uh, the driving force of Daddy Cool. And I think that's why Skyhooks uh, really respected him because Daddy Cool were a massive Australian band, Eagle Rock, one of the biggest selling Australian singles of all time. And so they respected him as an artist. And I think that's what he brought to the process. He got them as a band. He knew how to make a good record and what they needed to do. And they respected him. And I don't know if they would have, those strong personalities in Skyhooks, Greg McCainch, Red Simon, Sherl, they were all strong personalities. I don't think they would have respected just a Joe Blow producer off the street but they respected Ross Wilson as an artist so if he said do it again they weren't going to argue they knew that I, I better do it again and it's amazing that even with a band with such strong personalities that they could sort of get away with having someone like that on a first album and on a label which as you've already gone and indicated had no uh, had no real track record I mean they'd gone and released some albums of course but had nothing as phenomenally big as what Living in the 70s became but it's great that you know Michael Gudinski sort of believed enough and was able we can't emphasize that enough yes definitely we can't emphasize enough obviously it's the band but it's Ross Wilson and it's Michael Gudinski they're crucial parts of the Skyhook story and, uh, and, and, and of course, Countdown and everything else that was going on in Australia at the time. The time was right. And, and it's kind of like, you know, the chicken or the egg. You know, did Skyhooks make Countdown? Did Countdown make Skyhooks? It was just beautiful, you know, whatever that word is. Simpatico, is that uh, yeah. a word? Or yeah, that, that word. The, yeah. <laughs> um, so one, one other thing I wanted to bring up, and this is not so much to do with the band or the music, but I remember being completely freaked out when I first picked up the album and looked at the back cover. Yes. Now, for those of you who haven't seen it, I mean, you know, if you're once again, if you're Australian and you're Jeff and my age, you know what I'm talking about. But it, it's also a statement on the fanaticism of, uh, of the fans out there and probably a statement on everything that they had to put up with over the previous eight months with living in the 70s. So it's a letter. I don't know, and you can possibly confirm this, whether the, it, the letter it is like a, a drawing with uh, a letter that a fan has gone and written to the band saying how much she digs them and she wants to be their girlfriend in commas if you know what I mean um, I'm quoting uh, and um, she's you know expressing how much she adores them and she's the biggest fan etc etc and but what makes this a little bit more unusual is what she's gone and stuck to the bottom of the letter is a severed finger and it's you know I mean okay in nowadays uh, with album covers uh, it's like there's there's all sorts of things of cruelty and killing and uh, I'm not necessarily just talking about heavy metal scene but you know there's a lot of albums out there that this seems comparatively tame but it wasn't meant to be sort of shocking oh we've put a severed finger on there but it's a statement on possibly how scary the fans are out there so in your research for the book do you know anything was that letter like a genuine letter or did they get letters like that they certainly got letters like that and it was you know a reflection of how crazy it was and i remember talking to red simons about um uh, their american uh, you know uh, plan of attack and when they were over in america 
they had a, a bus driver. So they had the classic tour bus and they were going around America. And I think his na- name was Sammy. And this guy said to Red one day, he said, you know, I know you guys are big in Australia, but if you break it in America, you won't, you know, you won't, it'll blow your mind. You, you've seen nothing like it. Like if you can make it in America, it'll just blow your mind. And Red, as being a very intellectual guy who analysed things, just said, he thought about it and he thought, no, I don't reckon you're right. You know, like, why would it be different? We've had in Australia young girls, and I think this is what Red said, young girls wet their pants when they meet us. That They collapse. They, they, get, they go hysterical. How's that going to be different in America? You know, there might be more of them, of course. America's got a bigger population, but it's not going to be any different. And I think that's one reason why they didn't crack America, because they didn't have that same hunger that, you know, ACDC had and, 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 and LRB, and, and because they'd had it all in Australia. And I think, you know, that letter, which I think is kind of a fictitious letter, but that kind of sums up just how nuts it was. You know, in Australia, they had, you know, so many groupies, they had so many screaming fans, they had so many passionate fans. They had, you know, record sales that people had never seen before. So it, it really was just craziness. And I think that ego is not a dirty word. That back cover really kind of captures that. And certainly a song on the record, which I think is a really intriguing song, uh, The Other Side. And that song, you know, starts, you know, the kids on the street are looking at me. They want to cut me down. That's a really powerful song, a powerful line. And it kind of, to me, I read into that, that sort of sums up, you know, the, I guess the paranoia of Greg McCainch and this, what fame did for him. It really, you know, it was a crazy kind of time and, and that tall poppy syndrome in Australia. And that song ends with a line, which I think is really intriguing. I've never actually asked Greg about this, and I, I certainly will at one stage. They think I told the truth, but I really lied. I don't know what that's, that line's about, but I think that song's really sort of interesting. I guess it would be something about, well, I'm presenting this image to you, but guess what? It's just an image. It's just... I'm yeah. writing. I'm writing a song. It's not my autobiography. Don't believe just, it all. It's just. It's just a song. Uh, a good song, but it's a song. And I'm not. I'm not giving you a piece of me. I mean, I, I imagine that's what it's about. Yeah. So really intriguing song. And I think, you know, a lot of this album is about how Skyhooks, yeah, were dealing with fame. And I mean, ego is not a dirty word. The title track. I mean, that's a fascinating song too. It's like saying. And I remember. Um, Churl, there was a classic uh, interview, it might have been on Adelaide Radio, and a woman called up and just said, I think you're terrible, you know, you're, you're just full of yourself, you think you're fantastic, you're on the radio talking about how great you are, and you know, th- that was essentially the nature of the call. And she would have said, you know, look, you know, what sort of ego have you got calling up a radio station and telling me that my ego's out of control? I reckon you've got a bigger ego, which was very, very funny and classic Sheryl. But it was a classic sort of statement to make. Ego is not a dirty word. And it was classic to an Australian Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam. Actually, I think it was in a press conference, quoted that because uh, he was a man with a very big ego and, and obviously in touch with the arts as well. And, and he just said, ego is not a dirty word. So it was fascinating that an Australian rock band was being quoted by a Prime Minister. Oh, well, we all know that uh, one of our favourite American songwriters is, uh, has been misquoted by, um, by American presidents. 
exactly it, it happens but certainly that title track is a classic i don't know if there are many songs that managed to mention jesus and richard nixon and leonard cohen all in the one song <laughs> And that great misheard lyric too. The you know a lot of people at the time were like, "What the 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 eagle is not a dirty bird." <laughs> no, I don't think I heard that. One. Uh, I think that, yeah, that's how a lot of people heard it or sung, sung along. Now, when um, when they released their live album a few years later, live being it, they went and changed the uh, they went and changed the song from "Ego's Not a Dirty Word" to "Sex Is Not a Dirty Word." <laughs> yeah. Instead of having to get drunk to walk out the door, stay drunk to keep on going, is have to get fucked just to walk out the door. <laughs> that Sherl, he was a bit of a <laughs> yeah. rapscallion, wasn't he? He was, the great Aussie larrikin, and yeah, I miss him a lot. All right, um, look, I thank you very, very much for putting the album into some sort of historical context, because, I mean, I look, like you, I lived through it at that time, I mean, well, I'm just just maybe, you know, one or two days older than you, but... Um, <laughs> But, uh, but great time in Australian music. As I said, it was dominated by Skyhooks, but it wasn't just Skyhooks. There was so much going on. But just to sum up how phenomenal that album was, uh, both albums, Living in the 70s, number one for 16 weeks. Then Elton John's uh, Captain Fantastic album was number one for five weeks. It knocked off Living in the 70s. Then Ego is Not a Dirty Word became the number one album for 11 weeks. So out of 32 weeks, Skyhooks were at number one for 27 weeks in Australia. And then Ego was knocked off, funnily enough, by Sherbet and Sherbet's greatest hits, but it only spent one week at number one. And that kind of summed it up. Skyhooks rules. They won the battle. (laughs) Melbourne won the battle. I loved Sherbet too. And the great irony was that Sherl and Daryl were great mates, the two front men. They went surfing together. They really did love each other. And the bands were really good mates too. And the great irony of it all too was that even though Skyhooks won the war, when it started off, that big civil war that it was in Australia, Skyhooks were kind of minuscule compared to Sherbet and it was kind of Red Simons talking up the battle and it was kind of like you know a heavyweight boxer will do and talk the big talk just to try and win you know and to try and sort of be talked about in the same breath as Sherbet that's all they wanted because Sherbet were the big band in the country so they were kind of made up this battle oh, we're taking on Sherbet just so that they would be mentioned in the press and, and then they and won yet, the war and yet I guess the other thing that Sherbet may have had in common ironically with skyhooks was they were pretty different from a lot of what else was on in the australian landscape i mean we've already gone and spoken about you know the the hard rock scene and the uh and the country rock scene i mean okay sure we had like our pop figures and and the like but to my recollection i can't recall another group as opposed to you know say like you know your johnny farnham or john english or or Alison Durbin's or... or yeah, the certainly like. Hush were really big in the, in the mid-70s, uh, in sort of a glam rock sort of sense. Yeah, but not... not I'm talking about like... It, a, it were a real pop, pop band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, Ted Mowry gang in a different way. But yeah, Sherbet were that classic pop look um that sort of yeah I mean, even even ted mulry gang were still like a bunch of larrikins really. yes they, you know sherbet were were re- pin-up idols yes yes and ted mulry gang were, were many things but not pin-up idols <laughs> yeah, yeah all right no thanks thanks you so much jeff it's been great to have you back on the program hopefully it's not too long before we have you back but i'm glad that we had you for this show this is very important thanks for having me mo and any listeners do check out living in the 70s and ego is not a dirty word and then straighten the gay gay world as you said 
a very, very different record, but they're three remarkable records. In some ways, been forgotten by Australian radio. They don't get a lot of play mm. now on classic hits radio, but they are great records. So do yourself a favour, as a man from that time was fond of saying. Oh, you... you Finally got round to finishing that book. That's, yeah, a topic for another day, but yes. Okay, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, and Mo. You're listening to Love That Old. I mean, a lot of the parents don't exactly love you. Well, not exactly. I just leave it. <laughs> what about the sexual thing? You know, a lot of your fans are... Sounds like a personal problem of the way. Well, let's check with the, with the fans you've got here now. How many of you are 13 years of age? How many of you are dishonest? How many 14? So we've got 13 and 14 year olds and you sing about things like yeah. orgasms and masturbation. Oh, well, they probably know all about that. Yeah, so the girl says, we're not naive. Do you ever feel any responsibility about that? Would it bother you if you thought that you did lead youngsters astray? Is, that, is uh, orgasm and masturbation necessarily astray? That, I mean, we all do it, don't we? Wholesome. wholesome. <laughs> <laughs> go on. Tell the people in there. Right. Yeah, go on, do you? So you're out to shop. Oh, you're out to push. Is it part of the thing that if you get parents offside, you get some kids onside? No, that's a cheap trick. Do you do it? No. And you can only imagine what Mike Willisee would have said to Fee Weibel and the Tubes if he'd seen their act. Oh, anyway, thank you so much for listening to episode 77 of Love That Album. I had a really enjoyable chat with Jeff Jenkins and hopefully you can join us again in about two or three weeks where I will release episode 78 which will be a conversation with the host of Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide, Michael Pershing. In case you're not aware of it, uh, Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide is named after a Skyhook song and I'll also be joined by Reese Lett who is the head honcho at the Eastern Suburbs School of Music here in Melbourne. If you're in need of guitar lessons, then go along and uh, let Reese and his staff teach you. Uh, but Reese actually has some videos on uh, YouTube. You can look them up of him breaking down Skyhook songs and showing you how to play them. Anyway, the three of us are going to be discussing in the usual sort of love that album fashion about uh, the, uh, the songs on Ego is not a dirty word, our thoughts on the arrangements and the lyrics and the music and all the usual sort of stuff that we do on this podcast. I'm really looking forward to the conversation and hope that you'll see fit to join us. So uh, we'll be back in a few weeks if you want to send me an email with any of your thoughts about Skyhooks. Uh, any memories, if you were around at the time, saw them in concert, I'd love to hear from you. Send an email out to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Please join the Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album. And um, I'd love to hear from you, see what your thoughts are about the hook, see what you remember about all the uh, comings and goings of the time, all the fuss between Skyhooks and Sherbet and all the moral outrage. Really, Australia in 2015 is a very, very different climate. In fact, well, the musical climate all around the uh, pop world is very, very different. Or is it? Is there still moral outrage over things like masturbation and sex in song lyrics? Well, I don't know. Have we advanced? Have we gotten any further? Please let me know in an email. I'd love to read it out on the next program. It'll be a lot of fun. Anyway, thanks for joining us. In the meantime, go listen to your Skyhooks albums, read some books, watch some movies, and generally be nice to each other. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.